0: coming to you at your leisure from Flatbush, Brooklyn. This is Nothing is Boring. It's 2018 and you know what that means. I don't. Today's interview is with my good friend Jake Rosenthal. We go into a lot of specifics in the interview, so I won't give you too much in the intro, but Jake was co-owner of a beloved, let's say institutional independent music venue in New York called Glasslands Gallery. Glasslands closed under sad circumstances, along with a couple of their neighbors who were independent music venues. Uh, We get into that a little bit in the interview. But what's important about about Jake and about his partners, Rami and Dhruv, is that since Glasslands closed, they've been operating Popgun Presents, which is a booking and promotions company that has a really loyal following York, and has become famous for booking acts that are right on the cusp of international fame. The reason they've been able to do that is not just because they have great taste, but because they take risks. And, and what happens is a lot of times they book acts that are so close to popping as it were, that they have to to move the act to a larger room. Just as an example, some of the acts that they, they booked for their first shows in in, in the U.S. or for the first shows in New York gave them their first kind of New York opportunities were like MGMT, Yaysayer, Lana Del Rey, Disclosure, Deer Hunter, Tame Impala, Jay Riotard, some of these acts that have become really very famous. Since Glasslands closed They've been working on a new venue. It's called Elsewhere. When I talked to Jake for this interview, it was in September. It was September 12th. uh, It's now January 1st. Happy New Year, everybody. I talked to them when they were, as it turns out, six weeks out from opening. They opened on October 31st with a really fun show with uh, Battles and Cakes to Killa and a bunch of Future Punks, a bunch of fun acts. But at the time that I talked to Jake, he was very tired. He was very downtrodden because even though it was six weeks out, in hindsight, the opening date of the, the venue was in some indefinite future. I'd been trying to talk to Jake to do this interview for for many, many months before that, since the conception of this podcast, but Jake didn't want to do it because he didn't essentially want to jinx the the potential opening of this venue. We go into a little bit about what's so hard about creating a venue from scratch in this, but we really don't get into the the really ugly stuff about what happens with Contractors that don't fulfill obligations and uh, basements that flood in new construction and things like that. Jake went through the ringer with his partners, but they've built a really gorgeous venue. I spent last night, New Year's Eve there. It was full of happy people. The rooms look beautiful, they're full of artwork. There are currently two rooms operating in their new venue elsewhere in in, in Bushwick and soon there will be a, uh, a roof that is uh, quite large as well. It still retained a lot of the homey handmade, friendly neighborhoody vibe that made glasslands so special to so many Brooklyners and even to people from from across the pond who who came to think of it as their favorite place to, to see a show and and to play shows, I, I don't have the list in front of me, but if you look on the Wikipedia or click through to the blog at hardwork.party, you'll see a, a really impressive list of acts that have elected to play at, at Glasslands in the past. In a room, again, that's like maybe 300 capacity when these, these acts could easily sell out. Really, really large rooms. They elect to play at Glasslands because it's a it's a cozy homey neighborhoody spot and and elsewhere despite being a much larger venue has retained a lot of that so we talk a lot of, in detail about that we talk about the bar business we talk about the cool business we talk about a lot of things this is an interesting little snapshot it's a little moment in time because Again you know it's been a while since the venue two months now since the venue actually opened, and a lot has unfolded and a lot has changed since we talked but it's really interesting to hear the the thought process and the the kind of you know internal monologue of somebody who's in the in the process of building a venue from the ground up. Another interesting thing that's happened since since the venue opened is that our mayor Bill de Blasio elected to hold an event at Glasslands announcing the ending of a decades-old cabaret law here in New York. A lot of people didn't even know about this, but it was illegal to dance in any venue that didn't have a cabaret license. And this was used for a whole bunch of nefarious purposes on the part of administrations past, you know, a lot of them racially motivated to to kind of suppress parts of the the New York culture that 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 the city didn't want to further and it was a, an unfair law. It was a ridiculous law. It existed for my entire time in New York until just maybe a month ago. Uh, there's some great pictures. I'll see if I can put some up on the website of Jake and Rami and Dhruv hamming it up, cheesing it up as Jake said with with Bill de Blasio at the essentially ribbon cutting for dancing in Brooklyn and in and in New York. It's that's a cool thing to check out too. check out the website, by the way, hardwork.party for pictures of the venue for pictures of Jake, especially pictures of the venue before it's open. You can find a lot online now. We also mentioned something about CBGB's bathroom. That's up on the website as well at hardworkparty on Instagram, on Twitter. Hit me up. Hardwork.party is the website. Go to the forum. Let me know what you think. Subscribe on iTunes, please. Or anywhere you listen. Tell a friend. Rate us five stars. It really helps. Please enjoy the interview. It's Jake Rosenthal. I love you. Lands had over the years, all kinds of performances that were like rock, mm-hmm. mostly rock, I think. Is that accurate? Mostly rock? Yeah, mostly that's not, rock. That's not my question, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> rock, jazz, you you know, sometimes uh, there was electronic, you had like parties, yep. electronic acts. Um, I did rap. Rap, yeah. Folk. Yeah, folk. That's right. Uh, I saw some cellos in there every now and then. You had like Avant, Screamo. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. nu, nouveau hair metal. That's and, uh, never So like A like AVX. There were some lasers. I definitely saw some, some lasers in there. And punk, you know, et cetera. Mm. When the kind of stuff you present is that eclectic, what is it about the venue that gives it its identity or its, you know, je ne sais quoi? Well... This is,
1: that's one thing that we we always ask ourselves a lot at the space is that, you know, when you're trying to be a place that's inclusive and catering to a lot of people's tastes, like what, what at the end of the day actually makes it what it is, you know, what the space is. I I always felt like a big, a big part of it was the staff, you know, Hmm. how, um, how people are received when they get there, security, you know, security, the bartenders, how they treat people. Um, I think the vibe that you get from a place because of the staff and because of the staff the uh the decisions you make in the space some of which are staff others are you know decor um the way that uh the way that you run a show just basically operations decisions and um and staffing and you, the uh yeah the, the way people treat you there i think is a huge part of like the experience of being in a venue more so than people think beyond programming i think there is there is also a, a part of the identity of a place that speaks pretty loudly when you do have diverse programming. Also, I think that like in a weird way, despite the fact that you aren't getting your identity from being a punk club or being like a, you know, a dance club, yeah. I think you are in a separate way getting an identity as being a, you know, be, there, there is something to be said on an identity level for being a place that, pro, that programs all, all sorts of different types of music, yeah. and takes a on all sorts of different uh, like crowds and communities. And I think that's in a weird way, I think becomes its own kind of identity as well.
0: I remember the security was actually third party, right? Mm-hmm. And you were always kind of in a in a process of in a sense like begging your security vendor to give you people that you had a relationship with and not send you.
1: Did I did I tell you about that at the time? Cuz like that's a really specific thing to know. Well, we
0: used to talk about it from yeah. time to time cuz the you know, like you said, I I had a little bit of a relationship with the door guys. I just, right, you know, right. I was in and out a lot and right. I knew some guys and not others. And from a consumer's experience, whether they realize it or not, security is the first touch point with what the experience totally. of the club's going to be like. And I, I told you when the first time I went to Brooklyn Steel, mm-hmm. which is a new venue here in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. I was early and I went to pick up my tickets and then go grab dinner. Mm-hmm. And I went through security with a friend of mine and our wives had not gone through security yet. The venue was completely empty. It was probably like 9 p.m., it was yeah. totally empty. And we went through like airport-style third-party security. Yeah. Uh, empty your pockets, the metal detector, everything. These, they, these folks were wearing yellow polo shirts that said security or something. Right. It might as well have been like Z or triple canopy, you know, right, from where right. I was standing, or DHS. Right. And we went through security and stood just inside the lobby and we were waiting for our wives to come through. And they screamed at us to move. Yeah. They were like, you cannot wait in this area and that was our first experience at the venue, and I'm not sure—it'll it'll be a very long time before I can have a purely positive opinion of Brooklyn Steel, no matter how good that room is. Right. Because of that very first contact with them was so impersonal and rude. Security is your first experience at a club. What are you going to do about that with your new venue here? So, well,
1: I'm going to quickly—I quickly, quickly want to talk about security just in general as an outside— you know, as a third party thing, which is that like when you're a venue, it's, it's much easier to hire a third party security uh, company because they're licensed, bonded, secured. They've been doing it for a long time. They've got the guys. Yeah. It, it's just, it, it takes the whole headache and then the liability most importantly off your plate. So right. it's, so it's a very easy decision to make to just shop to you know, shop to one of these, uh to one of these shop companies, till you drop. shop till you drop for, mm-hmm. the, for the security brand security. And, and boy, do you drop because mm. Crazy. um because like you're yeah because like you said it's very expensive to go with the outside uh, security companies but then also you're always in this battle where that you're trying to get their their best employees you know because they've got a, you know these these rosters of 100 guys 120 guys you know security employees that are on their their rosters and you're always in a, in essentially in a competition as one of their clients with their other clients for the best their best guys their most their best trained guys their most friendly guys mm-hmm. the guys that are you know smart enough to understand how to do their job without you know without making people feel uncomfortable like, mm-hmm. like that and so if you're not building your own in house staff you really end up in this weird dynamic where you know you've got these guys that are so important to your venue that are like you said the first you know the, the first the, your greeters for the club who aren't really part of the team. You know, it's kind of this weird dynamic where for something that's so important, you've got these people who are sort of guests in your in your space at the same time. Yeah. And from week to week, you might, you know, someone that might show up uh, that you've you know, you have to retrain on the spot because they're a new guy with the company and they're not like your regular guy or or whatever it might be. And then people leave, people come, people go through these companies. And so it it can be very hard to feel like for everybody else, you've vetted people, you've you know, you've hired them specifically for the role at your venue. They've integrated into your team. They've been there for a while. And it's always sort of a tsunami in and out of security when you're using someone else. So here at the new space, we're going to be trying to build our an in-house security team, which is a huge challenge. Oh
0: my, I did not know that. Yeah. Mm. You know, you're opening sometime in the near future. Have you started that process already? The security, yeah, uh, very soon. And what, so do it's you gonna like, take about a month and a half. Do you put out a Craigslist ad like you know nobody under two hundred thirty pounds need apply? Yeah, you know, That's must that, be able to. That's how it starts. Crush a basketball in your palm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. We're putting that out. We're putting that out. I mean, next is it, week. is it, is, it, is it job discrimination? Only hire giant people for security. Is that legal? Uh, that's a good question. I never really understood. That's a good question. Where the job qualification? <laughs> went. You know, it's like you get. You, Nobody's going to take you to court for like not hiring a model because she doesn't right. or he doesn't look like whatever you want them to look like. Right. So the gap in their between their incisors isn't big enough. Or, right. I
1: also wonder that on the male-female ratio, right, for security. For security, sure. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: Yeah. Well, I actually tend to have better interactions with female security guards, but I'm not getting kicked out of venues. Yeah. At which point, like the friendliness thing is no longer the qualification. It's whether or not, you know, you can bodily lift someone and prevent them from hurting you at the you don't right. want somebody who's like I'm a scrapper and uh, I can really take my licks, <laughs> right. but I give them too. <laughs> no, and, uh, no, no. and it's like, no, you just. No, have- they, and
1: and uh, funny enough, like the the you know the for higher security market, I think is full of probably fifty percent those types of people. As little as you as little as you want them on your team, you know. Yeah, um, they're out there.
0: I, I I applied for a bouncer job when I was fresh out of college at this nightclub in my in my hometown. Mm-hmm. And you know I'm not I'm not a big guy for those of you who uh, can't see me right now, which is everybody but Jake. But uh, I was like I was like I'm a, look I'm a black belt in karate. I've been doing Muay Thai for four years. I got a good amount of grappling experience. Uh, and they're like, yeah, that's not. I don't want you to roundhouse someone in right. the head. Right, that's not how you diffuse.
1: Yeah. See, that's the thing. the the <laughs> The reason a good security guard is hard to find is yeah. because it's this it, it's this weird mix of they've got to be big enough to kick someone's ass, but smart enough to never know. have to. Yeah. And
0: the best gun is one you never have to use. Right. That's not a phrase, but it, <laughs> it sounds pretty good. It it sound pretty in good. the cadence that one would say. A it's phrase. a phrase now. <laughs> yes, there's a there's a there's a way to say something like that that implies that someone already knows how it's finished. <laughs> exactly. That was and a quotation. I'm just going to finish it. <laughs> and
1: so you know, every once in a while, you find that guard who um, can be yelled at in the face by someone oh, who's yeah. like on PCP, yeah, 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 and who is you know physically intimidating enough to not be a challenge to fight to people, you mm-hmm. know, to prevent deter. You know, a sure fight, but never really have to get into it, never have to ultimately scrap with someone because they're smart enough to de-escalate and they they have like the emotional intelligence to, yeah. Yeah, to de-escalate situations.
0: Mm-hmm. The the former venue that you ran, Glasslands, was on a block on a corner that it shared with two other venues that were in a certain sense similar but mm-hmm. different. There was two eighty-five Kent and there was Death by Audio in the same mm-hmm. building. Mm-hmm. Did you ever do consciously like make a decision deliberately to do something to distinguish yourself from those other venues.
1: I don't know if it was conscious, but we, I think when at Glasslands, when we took over, we didn't, we didn't, you know, open Glasslands. We right. took it over in 2011, but we started working there in 2008, very shortly, very shortly after it opened a couple, like a year and a half or so. But um, I don't think there was very much of a comparative thing happening between the, the, the spaces there, at least in, in my, in like my experience of running Glasslands. I think for us, it was just, we wanted it to be true to to us and to, and to the staff that we had there. And to us, that meant doing our best to uh, try to make it as safe and as legal as we could possibly make it, given the uh, you know, given the, uh, the 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 resources we had and as the circumstances.
0: I'm, never sure, I'm not sure I've ever heard the phrase "as legal as possible." One thing
1: that people do not understand enough about building code and uh, having a, a public gathering space in in New York is that everyone exists on a spectrum. A of spectrum. The world
0: is great. As yes. the great Tom Clancy said, "In a clear and present danger, this, the world is gray, sir." Is
1: this another one of your? Uh...
0: I think this was a conversation between Harrison Ford and the president. I may be getting the movie mm-hmm. wrong. Right in, let me know if I'm I never, never saw off it. about that one. <laughs> Jake, I don't mean to interrupt. Go on. Legality is a sliding scale from jail to yeah. <laughs> to what. Uh, who, who's really doing, who's on the up and up yeah is I, anybody- mean, well, I think best
1: your best case scenario yeah no ever i think so yeah i think like most of the legitimate venues out there that present themselves as music venue businesses are on the up and
0: up but legality mm-hmm. or permissibility mm-hmm. is extremely site-specific right because mm-hmm. there's a code yeah. to which a brand new building could be built Then, then it, it would more or less be rubber stamped when it opened, but nobody builds that way. And so every wonky, slightly unsafe detail Mm. that goes into a real building or Mm. that comes out of the process of turning a real building into something that it wasn't originally intended to do, or in in the process of building something from scratch as you make all these alterations, uh, these things come out. Those are things, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, that a, an inspector will point out and say, if you do X, Y, and Z to this thing, I will allow you to do this thing that is not to code, right? I think it's more,
1: not exactly. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you look at the end of the day to open a place, you need a stamp from the department of buildings on one of a billion pieces of paper, right? Mm-hmm. One on a couple, you know, hundred pieces of paper, right? How you get there through the course of your design, build and inspection, permitting and and building and then inspection. It's not always a clear path. It's not always a clear, this is the, these are the, you know, the the 200 things you need to do to, to, to get this rubber stamp. It, a lot of it in my experience comes down to, you know, the particular knowledge of that inspector or the particular knowledge of uh, knowledge of that plan examiner, um, what they did or didn't notice that day when they were examining your plans, what they did or didn't notice that day when they were inspecting your building. Yeah, It's certainly not a foolproof process, yeah. you know, but at the end of the day, typically what happens is they come in, you've built something, let's say, you know, you've got, you've you filed your plans, they've been examined. Okay. They, 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 Meet code, or they don't, and then you have to go back and redraw them or something. So they give you a permit, and then you apply for a permit. Once the plan's been approved, you get your permit to build. You know, your contractor gets your permit, then you start building, and then the back end of the building process, you basically go back to the department building and say, "Hey, we built this thing. Come, come check it and, yeah. and stamp it, and say yes, it was a, it was built to this these approved drawings I showed you last last year, right? And when they come, there's a universe of a billion things that could be wrong, right? literally it's endless amounts of things that could be a, an inch off in the code or could be you know something that you know your architect didn't notice or the plan examiner didn't notice and so their job is to come back and be like you know yeah basically everything was done correctly but here's a list of things that I noticed while I was there that mm-hmm. weren't you know and that doesn't mean that they saw every exhaustive list of things that were not to code when they came in it just means they saw these 15 Yes, and go fix them and then when you're done fixing those 15 we'll, we'll give you the stamp and so left in the dust is the hundreds of things that you know, minute things that, that may or may not have have been wrong. But the concern
0: is that when they come back to see those 15 things that they noticed the first time, they may notice a whole bunch of new new
1: things.
0: Do you, I mean, I've, I've had inspections where fire marshal shows up. Nobody knew exactly when they were going to come. They knew generally they were going to come this week, whatever they show up, Mm -hmm. you're at whatever state of preparedness. Mm -hmm. And it's like a sitcom Mm -hmm. in that one person is leading the fire marshal Mm -hmm. And as they try to act casual and saunter around with them, there are two or three people in front of them running mm-hmm. and like clearing fire egresses mm-hmm. and like locking doors that need to be locked mm-hmm. and turning on lights that need to be on. And then behind them, there are people, you know, looking at you over their shoulder, like trying to divine what needs to be done next, whatever it is in a really farcical uh, Neil Simon kind of way. You're doing your best. Yeah.
1: And it can be stressful in that exact way. Yeah. Yes.
0: And it's really personal. I, you know, do you do anything like have a snack? for the? Did, does it seem, are they sensitive to you trying too hard? Do they think you're trying to hide something or bother them up?
1: They're all totally they're all different. different. They're, they're human all totally different. They're human beings, man. Mm. I always got the sense that if they showed up and they're really frustrated that day or they're hungry or they didn't get much sleep or something, that it's going to be a lot harder inspection than if not. You know, yeah. it's that. I, I've always gotten the sense it's kind of like that. Some people, some guys show up and they're taking, they're taking no excuses they're taking no bullshit no guff if, yeah and if yeah. They, if you're if you're a minute late preparing something for the for the inspection or the test or whatever it might be they're they're ready to walk and mm. you know you wasted their time you know some some guys are like that other guys come in and and they just want us to make sure that, that that things look pretty safe
0: so your old building vice bought right mm-hmm. in 2015 does that sound right they didn't buy it they leased it they leased it mm-hmm. okay but it's 2015 or so it's like two years ago maybe? 20 yeah 2015
1: yeah. is when we were out of there
0: and I'm assuming cut short your run at Glasslands that you had intended, but you know you had bigger plans anyway. But mm. if two, three years in a year taking over Glasslands, that had, that had happened, mm. I'm assuming you would have gone on to do a new venue. You don't know, interesting. My question was gonna be, what would your new venue have looked like then versus what you're doing now? And this ties into like, so, New York changes constantly. Mm-hmm. Williamsburg changed dramatically in the yeah. last five years. We're, you know, we're in El- at Elsewhere, your new venue in Bushwick. Bushwick has changed drastically over that time and is mm-hmm. still rapidly changing. But also, you're getting older. How old are you mm, now? 30. And you took over Glasslands when you were, what, 24?
1: Well, when we took it over, yeah, yeah it would have been you know, whatever, 2011. So yeah, 24. We started working there when we were like 22 or something. Yeah.
0: This, I mean, these questions all kind of have to do with a bunch of different variables. One is like New York changing, but another one is your changing perception of New York and what you want. Yeah. You know, you're, you're in the, among other things, you're in the cool business. Uh And when, in 2008, you know, you were a baby Mm -hmm. and you were within a certain target market, especially for that kind of venue. You had all ages shows, right?
1: No, you never did. Last one's never had all. all right, was well, a
0: distinguishing factor. interesting, you and your right? Neighbors. Yeah. But, but we, how old were you when you took over the venue, or when you started working there? Let's see, 20, like, twenty-one or something. That's a demo that goes out a lot. That goes to shows, yeah, but has right. a completely different set of wants and, and aesthetic and everything yeah. than the thirty-year-old that you are now. Do you have numbers that you work from, or stats, or anything that? Do you know who the concert going market is in New York?
1: We don't have any numbers we work off, but I think we work off our experience, right? Yeah. So like, you know, I'd say that by the time people get to my age, most of them are not going out to a bunch of shows a week. (laughs) I I think that's safe to say. I think that, you know, I would say that the vast majority of the people that were at Glasslands for shows and and, uh, for parties were, yeah, were, were, I mean, well. Probably nineteen to uh, yeah, late twenties, twenty eight.
0: So when you first started, you were in right in the beginning of the target demo. Yeah, and now yeah. you're almost out of it. Mm-hmm. What's changed about your relationship to who you're booking, to how you put the venue together? I'm sure, in a certain sense, your ability to understand that market was probably as impaired as a twenty one year old as it is as a thirty year old. Yeah, very much. But do you would you have done things differently then, or do you think that you knew better then than you do now uh, in any way? Um, That's a good question. Uh, You know, I
1: don't think we were thinking when we were like 21, 22. I don't think... Well, put it this way. We were not thinking about really anything we were doing as as a quote-unquote business, you know? Mm. And so as such, we weren't really... We weren't thinking about target markets. We weren't thinking Mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. demos. We weren't thinking... We really probably, even at that time, we're not even thinking who these people were on our mailing list, honestly. I'm pretty sure... We did not—outside of just our own experience at the events, at the shows, at the parties, watching who who the people were and seeing that they were friends and friends of friends and friends of friends of friends, I think that was our only intuitive, like, sense of who was going to—who was coming to this place and, like, who—I don't think, like, we were not organizing a mailing list, we weren't targeting people, we weren't—we were doing no critical thinking about that whatsoever— and I don't think we really needed to at that time because it was small. The space was small. You know, it's like we weren't really ever um, – it's not like we had some thousand capacity space that we needed. Like we needed to find a new market for or, or something like that. So it was a relatively small space. Because our resources were low, therefore our overhead was low. You know, the whole thing was a little bit of like a sandbox kind of environment. So mm-hmm. we never, I think, were um, under the, the – we didn't really have the pressure to make it a high-performing business in any way, so we just weren't thinking about those things. I think now I think it's 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 much different. Like now, first of all, this place is way bigger. There's multiple performance areas. There's a, there's a cafe business in here. There's a there's an art gallery that you have investors. We have re, we have real. Grown up
0: you got a nut to
1: Investors. Ticket. Yeah. 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 Well, we got to pay people back.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, we
1: didn't have that at Glasslands. Really. Yeah. I mean, we did a little bit. I mean, we bought it from from the previous owners, but, you know, we'd already seen the the, the, the place running for a while. We knew what we could afford in that sense. So it was really more just uh, as we every week that we would make money, we'd give you know, we'd give a percentage of that back to the, the previous. Owner. that was how we bought it. You know, it was very, mm-hmm. it was very ramshackle uh, <laughs> right. tur- turnkey kind of. Uh, it was like a bunch of kids doing, you know, math on the back of an envelope, you mm-hmm. know, and, and sort of. Trying to figure that. I saw out. a
0: filing cabinet in there. I think you
1: had. A, yeah, no, we a safe. There were there was a safe and a filing cabinet. That was that was I think the apex of our business. There's a there. lock
0: on the audio closet. Yeah, I don't know if it was ever locked. Yeah,
1: except for that, you could just rip it. It was like <laughs> it was like ramshackle wood. You could just yeah. rip it all down. So this is very different in that way. You know, the new venue is how we've changed is that yeah, I mean we're older and. I think, in, I think that it has given us a lot of perspective about who a music venue, an independent music venue in a city like this, at in a city at this time, who is it trying to serve? What is its place in a community? You know, these are the things we're thinking about now, I think, that we weren't thinking about when we were 21. Because I think as you build a bigger space and as you get older, I think you start to think about what you're doing outside of the very narrow perspective of what your personal tastes are and what your personal interest is and who your hundred friends are. And I think that's the biggest shift I think that's been happening in our in our little crew, you know, doing what we do over the last 10 years, let's say. I think at the time it was like a little in crowd thing for who we were and who we, you know, who our friends and our friends of friends and this, you know, this thing that we, this community that we were in and that we wanted to kind of find a way to, to uh, serve. And I think we did a really good job doing that, you know, honestly. And I think that like in a way that made us really happy on a very, on that level, you know, and people like that pl- that place and our staff were our friends and we had a really good time, you know, but I think, uh, you know, as we get older, I think it, it starts to become more about like how can we serve people than how can we uh, like repeat the the days of our being twenty one. It's like not really about that, you know. Yeah, I feel like it becomes different in that way.
0: As a big venue, and this is a this is a much bigger venue. Your peer group. Sorry, Jake's been trying to get this one fruit fly for a while. We're in the cafe. It's a space. mosquito. That uh, could be a skater.
1: Um, there are there are no fruit flies in the cafe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> does the health department listen to this podcast yes. <laughs> i don't know if anybody listens <laughs> to as a bigger venue your peer group mm. uh, uh, by peer group i mean competition mm-hmm. i don't i don't i don't know that i know comprehensively but by and large are less independent mm-hmm. venues you're competing with venues that are owned by groups that own multiple venues and and are you know bigger dogs how do you relate? To your competition that way, especially because your identity is a booking company, and and you know, for those that don't know, Popgun and Glasslands and elsewhere are all, in a certain sense, the same group ish. Popgun, yeah, yeah, ish. Popgun is a promotion company that books all kinds of venues around New York, and will be booking here and elsewhere. So you've had a. A working relationship with these other venues, not just collegial, but you've actually been in bed together. Mm-hmm. When, when shows got too big at Glasslands, you would take them to another venue, mm-hmm. still under Popcon's umbrella, but you'd take them to one of these other big venues. Mm-hmm. And now you're now you're you're head to head, and I would assume that you're going to try to distinguish yourself in some way. Mm-hmm. How do you see elsewhere fitting into the landscape of mid cap venues here in New York? You know, that's like yeah. smaller than the studio. It, at uh, Madison Square Garden, smaller than T5, but as big, if not bigger, than almost every other independent venue in, in New York,
1: right? Yeah, well, I think, well, for one, you know, despite the the fact that the venue is big, no individual area in the venue is a, is a massive space, you know? And I think that's something that we, that, I think that's something that we built the space, in that way it was built on purpose from, from day one, because what we liked about running a space like Glasslands, which was, small, you know, relative to, 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 you know, the size these things can be is we got to work with emerging artists and we got to work with, with acts that were playing their first time in New York or their first uh, you know, in a lot of cases for bands from the UK or whatever, um, it would be their first time in New York. And like, that has always been something that we just, we, we just like doing. I think if you start building a club that's a thousand capacity, and by that, I mean a room that is a thousand capacity and up 1200, 1800, like Brooklyn Steel or something. I think that's really when you're getting into the realm of competition on a New York scale uh, with these kind of like Bowery's or AEG's or Live Nations or something. I, I think we like to sort of hide just underneath that and I don't think we really kind of have I don't think we'd be incredibly excited to do something at that at, at you know a 1200 capacity scale for, for a lot of reasons
0: what would be different if you were running a room that big you would have to make decisions based on marketability right a lot more than yeah risks. I think
1: that like like I said, yeah, I think you start getting it. a venue that size, you probably start have to thinking about bidding wars with with these large corporate rooms. You probably have to start thinking about yeah, just marketability of of, of stuff. You're probably well outside in a lot of cases your your own taste for music at that point, and and, and very often, if you're thinking about something that can sell three thousand tickets, I mean, how many how many acts that that you love that tour the yeah. city on a, on a regular basis are doing, you know, are. And, and it's not to say you can't fill a great calendar you know at that scale with stuff that is great music but it's really hard and it's really competitive i think that we play a different i think we play, we want to play a different role i think with a space like this i think that the independent spirit of what we're doing is really important and i think it's put it this way it's probably very very difficult to carry an independent spirit to a to a a business Mm -hmm. that large yeah and that's that's kind of what i'm saying and i think that like this space elsewhere is a big experiment in how large you can make an independent (laughs) business i think that's kind of a i think that's sort of what we're what we're trying to see you know how 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 much can we bring the independent spirit to uh to a space that can serve as many people as as uh and as many communities (laughs) as this place plans to
0: How often do you book acts that you don't like? It definitely happens. What goes into that decision?
1: I think that you know the 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 tug that you're always getting when you're doing any sort of art business like a music venue or like a concert promoter is that if you if everything you do is your taste in a, in a niche way then you're probably not going to you know be around very long. It's very mm-hmm. I think it's very very difficult to be a purist. In, in art in art business in art and music related businesses, let's put mm-hmm. it that way. Like take a record label, right? A record label is able to put out, take chances on smaller, you know, smaller run, emerging, smaller artists because they've got a record that really hit and they've that they sold, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies of. And they can take those resources
0: in yeah. order to grow. It's like the Soderbergh like one for you, one for them thing. I think that
1: like there's there's to be a place that that is sustainable and, and is able to take those chances, I think there's a balance, there's a balance. And I think that it's easier to sell, you know, it's easier to, to sell tickets and make money on stuff that is, is a broader, has a broader audience and is more mainstream. And so I think you, you yeah, one, one for them, one for me kind of thing.
0: often are you booking acts that have no infrastructure around them that have no management where you're dealing with the artist directly less and less is that a function of the size of the acts that you're booking not entirely it's a
1: function of i would say it's a function of the the size yes but also um the industry bands are getting quote-unquote teams agents managers publicists all this stuff like immediately these days, you know? You
0: mean earlier in their careers? Yeah,
1: very very early in their careers. Huh. Like compared to 10 years ago. Um,
0: Why is that? All other indications, you know, the music industry going the direction that it's going, so yeah. we're told, you would think that there'd be less infrastructure around bands.
1: No, I think it's the opposite. I think it's... And I don't know really. I'm not it's not like I've ever actually been a part of, you know, part of the music industry, you know, in a certain, on a certain level. Um, Like I've never worked at a record label. I've never worked at a publicist. Never, yeah, but
0: you're actually at the part of the music industry where they do make money,
1: right? Yeah, no, but I, what I mean is I don't have the direct experience. I've never really been in like a, uh, in in another, let's say another business that, and, and sort of yeah. felt what it feels like to be in like a proper, like a, like I think music venues kind of sit at the outskirts of the music, venu- music industry. And I don't mean to say that there's, there's not money in them, but that like they kind of, uh, there's sort of like a touch point in the music industry mm-hmm. um, that an artist touches along the career, the, the path of their career, but you know, the music venue is not where you're making the album deal, it's not where you're making the radio deal, it's not where you're making the distribution
0: deal. Not so according it's like, to all the movies I've seen, man. The a guy hanging out in the back. Oh, I mean, it might literally be the place you're making yeah, yeah. those deals, but it's not a, it's not a factor, right? Yes. It's not a factor
1: in the things that decide yeah. the the, the right. stuff that happens in the music industry, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so, it's like, what I'm saying is like, you know, it's a little outpost on the corner of the music industry that people, you know, come in and then they Leave. They come in. And they leave. But what I'm saying is that you know I don't really have the experience. I, I wouldn't. I'm just all all that to say. I'm prefacing my explanation of what I think the music venue the way the way it's behaving right now from like a you know with like a telescope looking in because I don't I'm not I'm not in these you know meetings. I'm not in these offices. But I think that it's what I think is that it's the opposite, which is that as you know the industry becomes harder and harder for musicians and for everybody really. I think the pie is getting smaller and smaller. And so it actually, you know, you do yourself, um, you have to get in at the ground level on an, on an act that's going to be successful earlier and earlier. I think I think that agencies, managers, publicists, all, you know, the, the industry, I think, feels like the onus to attach themselves to artists way earlier now because there's fewer and fewer chances, Yeah, I think. And so I think that people scramble because it really, you know, once you've got the infrastructure, say so you're like a touring agency or you're like a manager or whatever, is once you've got the infrastructure, it doesn't cost you all that much to sign, a, to sign a, a group. Yes, you have to be paying attention and you have to be doing doing the work. But like, if it means, if you've got any inkling that a band is going to be, you know, is going to blow up in some way, it kind of behooves you to get there early. Probably more and more so as like the pie for, for the music industry kind of like gets smaller. You know what
0: I mean? It's probably nothing like it, but it's kind of making me think of like the pop farm system in, mm-hmm. in Asia, you know, where like they're... Scouting kids from their yeah, third it's like grade. Like, it's yearbook. like the
1: NBA, right? It's like yeah, exactly. like the, you know the, the talent scouts are going yeah. to like you know like elementary schools now. You know, like <laughs> this <laughs> kid's like got a
0: hell of a slider. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's like he's he's four. It's like, but trust me, I'm in this business thirty five years. Beyond being in the promotions business, beyond being in the um, cool business, as we mentioned. Because um, I'm so cool. Because you're so cool. You're in the booze business mm-hmm. here.
1: That's the main business, yeah.
0: It, it is, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, anybody that's in hospitality is in the booze business. Mm-hmm. How do you pick what goes into that side of the business? So what's your, how do you choose what your offering is? How does that influence the rest of your business? I know Choosing what what you offer obviously says something about you in the same way that your staff does, in the same way that your decor does. Mm -hmm. But it also has a huge impact on your business model. And in a certain sense, Mm -hmm. the bar, more than anything, is this really simple kind of chemistry in in the sense that, like, you had, for example, you had a Negroni on the menu Mm -hmm. at Glasslands. And Mm -hmm. I think that was a good seller for you guys. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming it just showed up one day. Somebody was like, we should make a Negroni. Yeah, Rami wanted to make a Negroni. That's all. But the Negroni, I don't even know what the hell goes into it. It's what, mm-hmm. like Spumante and gin or like something? Campari and, yeah, something like that. Gin, and yeah. Whatever.
1: A, a lemons or orange zest, yeah.
0: And I would assume that at the beginning you didn't sit down and do a spreadsheet and say, what does a Negroni cost us? No. What's our profit on a Negroni and how long does it take the bartender to make it?
1: If we were smart, we might have. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that is what's going on with a bar business, mm-hmm. right? So you have a new venue opening up. I mean, we're in one of your bars right now and I see you big back bar. Mm. Um, we talked about taps. and mean, we should talk about that in a second, but how do you decide what's going to go on this back bar? How do you decide If there's, there's going to be a menu on the wall, how do you decide what the cocktails on offer?
1: are? Yeah. So it should be said that there's a very big difference between a music venue bar and a cocktail, bar, you know, and a bar bar, sure. or let's say like a, you could, I mean, you could split them into a million categories, but like, you know, for the purpose of like, no, there's thinking, only two categories there's only, there's only, <laughs> for the purpose of thinking about this kind of thing. Music venue bar sits, you know. In a lot of ways, there are a different set of rules for a music venue bar than there are for like a even a dive bar or, or that's you know on its own or a cocktail bar or something, right? Like for a music venue bar, what you're thinking about is you know you're thinking about speed, you know, because unlike a bar, you're open for a couple hours while an event's happening. We talking about cocaine? Yeah, we're you'd speed. Yeah, speed.
0: Okay. That is
1: what I'm you're mean. mostly thinking about speed. I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> mostly always thinking about speed. So. <laughs> okay, no, you. so yeah, you got to serve quickly, but you got to do that in every bar. No, no, but it's different though because in a music venue bar, you're open relative to a, let's say a dive bar, right? You're open a lot, fewer hours. You uh-huh. hear the dynamics of a music venue bar. You're open in a much shorter period of time. People are in your space while right. they're seeing a show. Right. Secondly, they're captive. Mm-hmm. meaning that they didn't come because it was a good cocktail. They came because they bought a ticket for the band
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they rushed to the bar be- between sets. Yeah. So you've got a dynamic where, you know, if you're using that 20 minutes between acts to make a few signature cocktails, you've blown your business. So music venue bar tends to have relative to other bars, you know, small, shorter, narrower offerings. Yeah. Um, stuff that doesn't need a, a ton of uh, prep and stuff that can move, just move fast over the, over the the bar. Because like I said, at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's a little bit like, well, the the bad ones will play to that dynamic a hundred percent. Right. So it's like, there's think about like the stadium mentality, right? Like all the way at the other end of the spectrum is the stadium, which is kind of like, fuck you. It's $14 for Bud Light because you've got literally no other option and fuck you. Yeah. So there's that. And I, so I think that like the choices you make, Knowing that dynamic, the choices you make as a music venue probably says a lot about you, right? Yeah. Because... It certainly does. Because, you know, you and this does play out, like, at music venues all over the place, right? And, and usually the bigger, the more it does, you know, where you're kind of like, there's one beer on offer. It's a little bit more expensive than it should be. And that's, that's the way it is, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that, like, when you're... You have to take all those things into account when you're putting together your offering, when you're... Uh, when you're figuring out how you want to serve people and what you're serving people and what the price is going to be. And I think that it is to the best of an independent business's ability, it's one of the things you're thinking about is how do I not use that dynamic to take advantage of people? I think that's, it's kind of your, it's, it's kind of on you as an independent business, I think to say, Hey, what can we actually afford here? Like how good of a price can we offer being, being a, you know, if, if we're trying to be a spot that feels like a neighborhood spot, that feels like a community place that has an offering for someone who's not, you know, they already pay 20 bucks at the door. They maybe don't have another 20 bucks to, to buy, you know, to spend on drinks that tend, you know, tends to be, you know, like kids who are our age when we started going to venues. Right. So it's like, so how do you make sure that you're not pricing out the people you actually want to be there with all these things at, at play? And, uh, and I think that, you know, probably the bigger you get and the more corporate you get, probably the more you see that as leaving money on the table and you kind of, you sort of will push that dynamic to its logical conclusion. Sure. But, uh, on this end of the spectrum, I think you try to give some of that value back to people and and make them feel like it's a, it's it's a place that, you know, they want to be at.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you, if you tease your numbers out long enough, you're probably going to find also that there's a break point where it's like, if my beers are $8, the average person's going to have two and resent me. But if my beers are $6, the average person might have three and have a good time. That's always the thing you're trying to figure out. Yeah. I think that and, and
1: like, I don't, you know, there are probably scientists who do this. Like, you know, like they're probably like hospitality people who are really all about this and, mm-hmm. and do this math and do this thinking and, and the data so far in our experience, it's really been more of uh, it's been more intuition that we've, yeah. you know, and I'm not saying that's a, that's the right thing to do. I'm just saying like, you know, we sort of watch the crowd, like get feedback from people, you know, just hear, hear stories from other, you know, from friends of friends about, yeah. you know, how, you know, how they felt or how their friend felt at the bar or, um, or like, you know, you just hear stuff like, oh, it's kind of expensive. And you're like, oh, okay, maybe that was a little, you know, maybe we price that a little too high. Internalize that. Kind of, you know, you, yeah, you internalize it a little bit and, you, and you, you adjust or whatever. So that's kind of been the way we've done it in the past. Just sort of gut checks.
0: What's going on the menu here?
1: So, yeah, the thing I was going to say is that here at Elsewhere, which is different than glass lenses, we've got the venue space bars, but we've also got this cafe loft bar, which is going to be open during the day. And then sort of become a like a more of like a seated bar lounge during the performances, like a hideaway area. And so up here, we're thinking about since it's not connected to the performance area and because it'll be open when they're not, we're thinking about what we can do with this bar that is a little bit different from that dynamic downstairs. You got the
0: guy with the tie tucked in between the buttons on his shirt, right? Who oh, oh, who oh who you mean the shaker, shaker, the shaker guy? Yeah, yeah, shaker guy. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're thinking about maybe having a couple of shaker guys. Guy, guess, with, the, guy with the mustache.
1: But you know what I mean? Like, up here, we're thinking about maybe going with some offerings that are not sort of more just, like, uh, high-volumes bar, venue bar stuff downstairs. Sure. Try to, you know, try to get people a place where they can get a slightly better drink up here. And uh, take a place where the bartender can take two seconds of time and really, like, make a drink. Mm-hmm. Um, which has mm-hmm. not really been our thing in the past,
0: you know? Give me some of your favorite venues of all time.
1: Um, that I've been to?
0: Yeah. The old... What, what venue is on your favorite list that you have not been to. Let me, Oh, well, yeah. we're,
1: well, we're, we're music venue, like history nerds. Okay. So, yeah. you know, so we, you know, a lot of, a lot of what we, you yeah. know, inspired us. Wembley by. stadium. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> a lot of what, you know, inspired the design of this place and the culture that we want to have here does come from, you know, come from like, uh, talking to people who were at clubs in, in other, you know, decades in, in this city and other cities. And, um, kind of yeah just do research in that way sort of cultural research okay um but, but the yeah.
0: venues you have been to then
1: i like the old knitting factory the one that was like a pirate ship
0: yeah that was like three leonard. stories
1: yeah three three rooms yeah always felt like you know sort of like the, the rickety it felt like a pirate ship yeah you know, this was this factory.
0: was downtown on like walker or something south I was, I it was leonard no maybe I, leonard yeah i, I, I might be right. wrong no i think you're right
1: uh i did get to go to don hill's um, a couple times before it closed. Uh-huh. That was, it was a pretty amazing place um, in its own way.
0: Um, what was special about that?
1: Um, it just kind of had the it kind of had that old, a kind of like old New York style of a, a venue.
0: You mean covered in grime? Yeah, in graffiti, yeah. unpretentious, and stickers. a little bit.
1: Yeah, from that sort of like a, the the leftover '70s vibe mm-hmm. kind of feel. I'm trying to think, I'm kind of blanking on kind of blanking on clubs. How right about now. CBGB? I never went. You never went. I never went, and you were in New York during the time that that was open. Well, not when people really like talked about it too highly. Well, I mean, I should I should have gone. Should have gone. Yeah. yeah, no, I never went to CBGB. Never saw it. Although our architect here worked on uh, helping legalize CBGBs in the uh, early nineties.
0: I'm really surprised to hear that it was ever legal.
1: Well, I don't know that they got it fully. I, I don't really know if it was if it was ever fully legalized. But he was part of the process of like working on it.
0: For me, aside from the kind of accretion of cruft that was on every surface in that place, mm. which was definitely iconic in, an, in and of its own, you know, and definitely only iconic places really get that mm. far, like Geno's East and, in Chicago or whatever mm. it is, that kind of thing. Mm. Aside from that, the thing that I remember most about CBG is, there's, it's the first of all, you get to the bathroom, if I remember correctly, you get to the bathroom like Basically, like, the door to the bathroom is directly next to the stage. Yeah, I've, heard, I've heard that. It's like you heard that quite a bit. are on stage when you're entering or exiting the bathroom. Yeah. And inside the bathroom, the only toilet was like up two steps <laughs> with no door. <laughs> what? Just like a throne. <laughs> and you go in the bathroom and like if someone was on it, they're just... When did you go? I don't remember. I don't know. Early aughts probably. Yeah. And I don't remember who I saw there. Probably the Rolling Stones,
1: I think. Yeah, probably you probably saw the Rolling Stones there.
0: What are some strong feelings you have about what you do? Like, what are your first principles? Strong feelings? Uh, how do you, how do you mean? If you were sitting down a young someone mm-hmm. who wanted to get into the biz, and you're not giving them advice for success, you're giving them advice for how to how to do this right. Yeah, build venues or,
1: or throw shows.
0: Throw shows. I like that
1: <laughs> that's what we do throw shows mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I would say every act on a bill is important I think that's an important an important uh, part of putting a lineup together um, that is sorely overlooked I think it's easy to book a headliner obsess about the headliner selling tickets and then think that the rest of the, the lineup is a C4. an afterthought yeah you know. I think all the best shows that we've ever done have been the best because, because it had that compounding effect where every, every act was supposed to be there, you know, yeah. for that show. Definitely take chances. I think it's actually easier to find acts that can sell a lot of tickets and fill a space with no staying power for you, you know, in, in a sense. You have some, have some nights that there's like 20 people there. That's what I'd say.
0: Hmm.
1: Don't be. Don't be afraid of that
0: tots mm-hmm. could be, this isn't even a question. I'm just going <laughs> to tell you something here, Jake. Tater tots, mm-hmm. that tot money
1: mm-hmm.
0: is something I've been very frustrated to see you leave on the table
1: <laughs> since talking. the day we met. Talk about leaving, leaving stuff on the table.
0: I was not going to just leave this hanging out there without getting it on the record. You need to get that tot money. Jake. Tater tots. Yeah. You've, what I'm been, talking you've, about. Been tell,
1: you've been telling me about I this.
0: I brought this up before.
1: Yeah. This has been a, actually a pretty consistent fixture of mm-hmm. our conversations for probably three to four years now yeah. as we've been building this venue. Yeah. What, so what, how does the tot, how does the tot business work? I'm going to turn this around on you. I'm
0: going to, okay. I like this. <laughs> what, nobody's in, what, um, here. I'm glad you What asked. would you say
1: if you were sitting down a young somebody? Yeah. And you I were am. giving them advice, I not am doing that. not for success.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, this is this but, is for success, though. But
1: like like uh, for you know how to do
0: it right. Mm-hmm. What would you? Well, don't say? undercook them. That's the first thing. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna want to get them out. You're gonna be there's gonna be a line for the tots. High volume. There, there's gonna be a line for the tots. You need to let the line. Do what it's gonna do. If you need to buy another fryer, buy another fryer, but don't <laughs> go serving like undercooked tots. They gotta be crispy. Maybe even a little bit on the dark side. You know what I mean? Because at first, somebody's gonna be like, these are a little darker than I wanted. They'll then come around. They're gonna come around. And you know, so don't be
1: afraid to take chances. Here's
0: what's gonna carry those darker tots, Jake. Here's why the darker tots are gonna work
1: mm-hmm.
0: the toppings. It's all about, you're not selling tots, Jake. You're selling a dream, and the dream, <laughs> the dream is pizza tots. The dream is is tots with uh, parmigiana. Can the you army. do?
1: Can you do? Um, the, can you do like brat style tots? You can do. Like it. Um, you can follow your dreams. Like when mustard and mm-hmm. um, of
0: course, like sauerkraut. I'm getting hungry just just hearing that. Sounds pretty good. It sounds fantastic. Your imagination will run wild once you allow the tots into your life. But what I don't want to see is for you to get involved in all this, and when I say all this, I'm pointing my finger in a circle, pointing up, really like a really- Kind of like a yeah, lasso. But really what I mean immersion. is this giant business that you've just embarked on here with your wonderful friends. But forgot the one thing. And you're leaving all that Todd money on the table.
1: God damn, I became anymore, I became the one thing. You know would break my heart <laughs> that I always despise <laughs> I'm another not
0: tot seller <laughs> <if> another venue <laughs> opens up across the street doing just what you're doing in that lot over there it's in that empty lot next door, and they got tots
1: and all that tot money. Well, the thing I've never understood about this tot conversation that we mm-hmm. keep relitigating mm-hmm. <laughs> is you talk a lot of shit about tots, just, but <laughs> I don't have a you venue. Got, But you've got, you nope. got the opportunity. But you've got the no. opportunity. If you're such a tot
0: entrepreneur, <laughs> don't tempt me. Where's, Jake. where's your? T- it's a big bushwick. All right? <laughs> I don't want to be that guy going in across. I want this for you. <laughs> you're, you're trying so to I sell start the a dream. Music venue to show trying you, to sell the dream. Show you what tots are about. I'll do it, but I don't want to, Jake. Well, cool. This was fun. I think there's some shake. Shake on it. We're doing a handshake. Shake on it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thanks, Noah. Thanks, Jakers. Isn't Jake the best? He's the best. I love you, Jakers. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the way I met Jake several years ago was that Glasslands had an iconic sculpture known as the Clouds that was made out of cray paper and Christmas lights. It had this beautiful ethereal quality to it, really warm quality. It was completely illegal, totally a fire trap, and eventually the fire marshal got fed up with it and told him to take it down. As soon as they did, I think that the following day, they got in touch with me through a friend. I I build installation artwork. They wanted to talk about replacing it, so I and, uh, and our, our mutual friend Jason Fellows and and Jake and a whole bunch of other folks banded together to build the piece known as the tubes that was all over the ceiling at Glasslands. At the time, if you want to see more about it, you can you can go to the website, hardwork.party. There's a case study up. You can check it out. As always, I'm going to hit you with a little bit of a Wikipedia Arcana. This one is is actually the, the concept that first blew my mind on Wikipedia. I distinctly remember the late night I spent clicking from entry to entry, having my mind shattered over and over again, eventually culminating in my first reading about the concept of the singularity, uh, which is now pretty widely known. But the concept that got me into this was the concept of stellar husbandry or star lifting. So, this is entirely theoretical, it's basically science fiction, but there's a conjecture that a civilization will grow in, in its use of energy to, to consume all the energy that their star provides to the surface of their planet. There's a scale for this. It's called the Kardashev Scale. That would be a Kardashev Type 1 civilization. Uh, type 2 civilization would be one that uses all of the energy of their star. So that would be most likely done by the construction of something hypothetically known as a Dyson Sphere, which would be a construction of some kind that encompasses the star and harnesses its energy for... The uses of the civilization. Type 3 would be one that, a uh, civilization that uses all of the energy available in their galaxy, or a galactic civilization. Totally hypothetical, proposed in 1964 by Soviet astronomer Nikolai Kardashev. The things that would be required in order to become a galactic civilization come to mind as soon as you start thinking about the logistics of this but they're collectively known as star lifting or stellar husbandry which would be let's say a bigger star burns faster but not necessarily more efficiently it will, it will burn through its fuel faster so maybe a civilization would remove some of the material from the star in order to feed it to another star that is dying, let's say, or to just uh, prevent the star from burning too quickly or to get it to the optimal rate. It would maybe drag a star closer to an orbit that it wants it in or combine stars. All sorts of things you could think of. These entries are pretty crazy to think about and have been worked out in terms of the math in some detail. While this is science fiction, it is science. It's worth checking out. It will blow your mind. All right, please tune in next episode when I talk to Richard Morales. Rich runs Superfine Audio. He's a mastering engineer. He cut his teeth at The Lodge, one of the world's most renowned mastering facilities where he worked on Grammy-winning records. He worked on Foo Fighters, Vampire Weekend, Sia. He now runs his own mastering agency. We talk a lot about gear. We talk a lot about listening. We talk a lot about the subjectives of the mastering process. It's very interesting. If you don't know about mastering, this will be pretty eye-opening for you. Please tune in. Tell a friend. Rate us five- stars thank you so much for listening happy new year i hope 2018 is the best year of your life i'm contractually obligated to say that all of our music is by the great breakmaster cylinder i'm not obligated but nonetheless elect to say that breakmaster cylinder is objectively tremendous i love you